On episode 1136, SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce responded to Jason's proposal to have his Angel University course be part of a test to become an accredited investor. Yeah, I mean, I think you've raised a couple really interesting points. One, I think, is important to emphasize, which is um, diversification is is a way to protect yourself. And, and so um, people who even may have opportunities to invest need to think about the diversification of their whole portfolio, including where you work. So sometimes you'll get opportunities to invest in the company you work in. But you have to remember, you don't want to have all your eggs, including your career and your investments, necessarily in the same basket. So Great good, point. good things to think about. Um, and you also want to think about how much money you can afford to lose. And I'm not giving anyone investment advice. I'm not recommending any kind of investments to anyone. But you do want to think about how much you can afford to lose. And you always want to ask a lot of questions of whoever is asking you for that money. So I, I think your idea of a test is, is one that others have thought of. And, and I have had some initial inquiries about that. Um, I do urge people to come in and talk to the SEC. The SEC has opened the door for people to come in with ideas like this. The notion of having some sort of capped investment amount is not something entirely foreign. Um, that is what we do in the crowdfunding space. There are limitations on the amount that people can put in. Again, as a person who comes to this um, with the with the idea that people should be able to invest their money as they choose, I get very uncomfortable when we're trying to micromanage people's finances. But I can see that, you know, I have to work with colleagues who have, who have, um, who are maybe more conservative than, than I am in that regard, and they would like to put some breaks in place. So I can see that kind of thing being attractive to people. And that gives you a little chance to practice maybe investing small amounts. I would say even if the government doesn't tell you that that's how you should approach things, it's really good, a really good idea to be cautious in how you approach things. Don't jump in with, don't empty out your bank account and jump in with, with both feet to invest in something. Um, unless you're really sure what you're doing, you, you really need to be careful. And there are a lot of people out there who are just waiting eagerly to steal your money. So that, that brings me to the, the final concern that I would have about your proposal, which I think we will see something like a test develop at some point. But you have to be careful if you're going to be the consumer of one of those tests, then you've got to make sure that the person who's selling you that test is not just trying to sell you on a, an investment opportunity, which means that she wants to run away with your money. Um, so you've got to do your due diligence. A part of what I believe in is certainly freedom to invest as you want. But with that comes responsibility to ask a lot of questions. If your gut is telling you, you don't trust this person, then you've got to run the other direction. Um, and so I think that's part of the, the, the course material that, that would need to be covered, which is be careful. Um, be aware of some of the red flags for, for what a scam could be. Um, but with that said, I think I, I, I would welcome you, Jason, to come in to the SEC with its with with the idea that you're thinking about. Um, come in and talk to our division of corporation finance, which is the the part of the SEC that that is thinking about how maybe we could further expand this definition and and share your ideas. Um, and I welcome anyone who's listening who has other ideas to to do the same thing. I think it's only collectively that we can really approach this problem. And I think it's, it's right for you to point out that we need to 
think about this as a country. It's not just us, the regulators, trying to figure out what the right answer is here. We need to draw on the wisdom of, of everyone out there, people who have been in the investing world and who know the kinds of information that, that people need to know before they invest. On episode 1137, Replit CEO Amjad Massad explained AI's immediate impact on developers and if it could ever replace them entirely. I think uh, the most immediate thing that AI will do is will make programmers uh, more effective, more efficient, and will continue to increase the uh, access to programming kind of in the same way that Replit uh, does that. We continue to look at it and, and invest in it, and at some point we're um, we're probably going to build something there. But uh, I, I don't see it. Uh, uh, so if you replace programming programmers, that's the last job you have to replace. Because think about it. The if the machine can program itself, then you get into what AI researchers call intelligence uh, explosion, because you have an AI that is programming itself to get better. And so maybe an AI programs it's sort of the uh, the next version that's better of itself. Of itself, and then the yes. next version is programming the next version, and then you have a runaway explosion, and then. It, we invented God. <laughs> it, yeah. it's, it, it, so it is, if programming gets automated, it's the last job that's going to get automated. And it's the end gonna, of human, the human species, basically. It, it is yeah. like Skynet, right? I mean, basically, you would be Skynet. So, I mean, I hope uh, programming doesn't get automated because I think it's, uh, it's, uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a v- very different and risky world because it ends up centralizing power into the hands of the people who end up... How far off do you think programs. we are from that? Because um, you had your mind blow by GPT-3, right? That kind of blew your mind, and that was unexpected? It blew my mind, but I still could see its limitations very clearly, and I could still... It's, um, it's still not reasoning. Like, I don't think it is, there's any reasoning there. I, I don't think we're decades away, I think. We're definitely mm-hmm. decades away. Um, uh, but, uh, but I think Two eventually- Two or three decades go by pretty quickly based on yeah. my <laughs> life experience. <laughs> I felt like I was in the 90s just yesterday. And yeah. three decades, we're, here we are, three decades later, two decades later from the 90s. So it does go by yeah. quick. In yeah. 20 years, you could see that GPT-3 being pretty darn good, huh? Yeah, I, th- I think there's still something missing. Uh, like neural networks work in a in a in a kind of like you know fashion like you said you throw more data at it you throw more compute at it 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 becomes this very resource intensive thing that it just you know the more it grows the better it gets but i think there's a limit to that and i think the next uh, evolution in ai has to be some kind of reasoning and has Mm. to be some kind of different thing i think neural networks will hit their limits at some point and so the question will become okay when do we when do we get to the next uh to the next uh, innovation in ai on episode 1138 jason answered a listener question about the stigma around solo founders hi jason my name is anrup kumar i'm one of the partners and co-founders of inflect digital we are a growth marketing firm specializing with startups helping them scale growth and so our team's all ex-Facebook. But the question I have for you today is because we work, end up working with a lot of venture capitalists and so, and a lot of the feedback that we get is that they're weary of investing in 
single founder teams per se, right? They want to see like a group of founders and so coming together. Is that a consideration for you? Uh, are you open to investing in single founder teams? And if so, what kind of traction do they have to have? And are there certain verticals that you just won't touch if it's a single founder? And so I'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks. Great question. You're asking specifically about me. Here's what I care about. I care about making money, being successful, and dunking on everybody in the world because I got to a startup before they did. To me, that's delightful. I love that. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding, but not. So let me give you a little history on the single versus uh, dual versus you know three or four or five founders. And I'll give you some examples because everybody loves a good example. I met a gentleman named Raul. He had like five co-founders for a really brilliant little app. And he uh, got to the point where this little app called Reportive was gaining steam. And LinkedIn came along and said, we want to buy your company. I, now, I don't even know the other four founders of, I, I literally couldn't tell you the other four founders of Reportive because it's been 10 years. The company only existed for a couple of years before they sold to LinkedIn. And they sold for what would be the equivalent of like, for me as an investor, getting a single, getting on base, like because I got hit on the head with the ball. I put 25, 50K in and I got back like a hundy. You know, it's 4X, I made 50, 75 grand. It's not gonna change my life. I know it sounds obnoxious, but that, to me, that's the worst possible situation. But there was a great thing. There's five co-founders. So if you lose two, you got three spares. That was something that Paul Graham realized early on with Y Combinator. Y Combinator had a massive influence on the startup ecosystem. I give Paul Graham so much credit. I know people find him polarizing. The Overton window now is so tight that... Paul Graham's tweets trigger people. And I mean, it, it, we, that's a whole nother episode. I, he's a brilliant person who has made such an amazing impact on the technology industry. Um, it, it really, it, more. he's done more for the tech industry in the last 20 years, I think. Definitely top 10, maybe five. Putting that aside, he realized when he was giving people money in the early days, he had no money. So he give a, he would, I think he gave 8K per founder. So if you had two founder team like Reddit, you know, he would give them 16K. If you had three people, he would give you 24K. And if you had one person, he'd give you 8K. I, you can look it up. Yeah, it was something in that sort of broad strokes. And the idea was, you're going to work on it for three or four months. You're going to have 3K each. It was ramen. They, they, he called it ramen funding. I, I'll, I'll pay for your ramen. And part of your rent, you guys work for three or four months if it works and it works out great. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. So that's why you have this addiction to the multi-founder approach. I don't care because there are maniacal people who are exceptional founders, who are so good that for them to have a co-founder would only slow them down. What co-founder in the world is going to be able to keep up with Mark Zuckerberg, come on. What founder in the world, what co-founder is gonna be able to keep up with Elon Musk? You know, like Steve Jobs had Waz, that was actually a true co-founder because he needed a technical person at that time. And so in some cases, it's just much better for the to, to not have co-founders. When it is, it is good because it creates redundancy. It is bad because sometimes it creates uh conflict and you know problems the 
the number one killer of these multi-founder companies is infighting between the founders. You don't see that typically in a solo founder. But with a solo founder, if the solo founder go, you know, loses their mind, jumps the fence, now you got a problem because who's going to run the company? So I don't over-optimize for this. I think it's stupid to over-optimize for it. I'm not saying Paul Graham's stupid for doing it. He had a reason to do it. It was like a mechanical, technical reason, and he was doing 100 startups. It makes total sense there. What I'm say, trying to say here is, what I there's so many more that there's so many more important things to think about with a startup. How good is the idea? How good is the execution of that idea? In other words, how good is the product? How much do the customers love that product? Will the customers be absolutely distraught if the if the product goes away? Like, if Tesla went away tomorrow, I don't know what car I drive. I go back to driving a Corvette. I mean. I, I, I would be I would be heartbroken if I couldn't drive my Tesla, right? And a lot of people feel that way about their iPhones or their Uber or their Postmates or their Airbnb. Like that's how good the product has to be. So focus on that. I don't care. You want to be one. The only problem I do have is when there's like five, because then who's in charge and then how much equity is left? So then that becomes a math problem. Solo founder gets diluted 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%. Okay, somewhere along the line, they own 20% of the company when it goes public, right? Or something in that range. You get five co-founders, okay. You know, VCs come in and take 30%, five co-founders, they give 10% to the employees, five co-founders have 12% each, then they get diluted 20%. So they're down to 10%, they're down to... 7% and you know, when you start getting founders into the low single digits, you know what they start thinking? If I start over and I'm a solo founder, I can have 85% of this bleep in company. And I seen it happen. And it's a real bummer. So you got to top off those founders. I have a little secret for that. Because I'm usually early in and I'm the early advocate. I'll just say to the latest stage founders, the latest stage investors, listen, this founder is at I don't know. In one case, it was like, I don't know, 11%. I'm like, this kid's killing himself. He's got 11% of the company. The company had to raise money. It was a pretty hard situation. He doesn't have a co-founder, but I want to give this founder five points over five years. People were like, oh my Lord. I'm like, well, he's almost fully vested. You want to run the company? And we'll put the five points and we'll tie it to something like performance or whatever. And I got everybody to do it. Then I was in another situation, happened to be a female founder. She was down below 20%. You know, I think she wasn't as acute as the 10% situation. I think she was at like 15. She wants to do the top off. She says, I want 10% more. I went on 25%. She had just taken a couple million dollars. I'm, I'm blurring some of the details here so it's not identifiable. And I said, okay, I support you. But, you know, there's two other... There's two other board members you have to win over with this thing. And so she said, well, you talk to the board member. I talked to the board member. He's hardcore. He's like, no, no. Um, hit your numbers for a year and then make a request. You still have uh, 18 months left on your vest. When this investment, when you're through this vesting schedule and you've hit this millions of dollars in revenue, then I think you can make that request. And I was like, okay. For me, I'm like, I just wanna lock the founder in. I don't want them looking over their shoulder. So great question. I gave you a little more information than you asked for, uh, but no, Jason at Calacanis.com doesn't care if you're solo or two or three. And my point about the Raul story is, lo and behold, he started another company called Superhuman. 
there are other partners there, but he's running the show basically. Um, and I think he's kind of a solo founder. Um, although there might be some folks who consider themselves like on the founding team. So there's a lot of like, um, nuance to this as well. The way you know who the founder is, is there somebody who owns 30 or 40% of the company? That's like a solo founder. And if there's two or three, they own, you know, typically 10 or 20% each, which can be a lot of money if you stick around. The best of this week in startups is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. A business is only as strong as its people, and every hire matters. Get $50 off your first job post at linkedin.com slash twist. Silicon Valley Bank. For over 35 years, Silicon Valley Bank has helped thousands of tech and life science companies plan for the future. Learn more at svb.com slash next. Silicon Valley Bank. Built for what's next. Main Street. Founders, you're owed over $50,000 by the IRS. Main Street gets it back for you in 20 minutes. Get back your cash at mainstreet.us slash twist. LinkedIn Sales Navigator. With face-to-face meetings now a thing of the past, you'll need to quickly adapt your sales strategy to stay ahead. LinkedIn Sales Navigator is the tool designed to help you master digital selling. Go to linkedin.com slash SaaS to start your 60-day free trial. That's linkedin.com slash S-A-A-S. Pipe. SaaS companies, this is for you. Pipe helps you unlock your recurring revenue as upfront capital. No debt, no loans, no dilution. Sign up in minutes and start trading on Pipe free for 12 months at pipe.com slash twist. Odoo is a fully customizable and fully integrated suite of software that lets you build and scale your stack as you build and scale your business. Your first app is free forever, and right now Odoo is offering $1,000 off your first implementation pack at odoo.com slash twist. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash twist. LinkedIn Marketing. To redeem a $100 LinkedIn ad credit and launch your first campaign, go to linkedin.com slash this week in startups. Klaviyo is the e-commerce marketing platform that helps brands build relationships with memorable email and SMS messages. Today, more than 50,000 brands like Living Proof, Hint, and Chubbies choose Klaviyo to help them grow. Get started with a free trial at klaviyo.com slash twist. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash twist. And Masterworks, the first company allowing investors exposure into the blue chip artwork asset class. Twist listeners can skip the 25,000 person wait list by going to masterworks.io and using promo code twist. 